Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 3 of the Guelo Ramblings World Tour podcast. My name is Stephen Palmer. You might know me from being the co-host of the Asian Cinema Film Club podcast with Mr Elwood Jones, or maybe my writing for easternkicks.com, or maybe for my Asian Cinema blog, guelloramblings.wordpress.com, which of course is where this podcast gets its name. If you want to know more about who I am or how we got here, I suggest you go back and listen to the first episode, then come back when you're all up to speed. Or, just stay and wing it. Either way, you are most welcome. The last time we had a sort of trip to Iran, and looked at a horror film with a socio-political message, and an indie film that mixed up Americana with an Islamic setting, using a skateboarding female vampire in a chador. This week, we're back in Europe and having a look at a couple of well-regarded films from Italy, although they are both somewhat flawed masterpieces. We'll start with looking at a film from one of the masters of Italian horror, and one that recently got a Western remake, Dario Argento's Suspiria. Dario Argento is probably most famous for films in the genre known as Giallo, which is Italian for yellow. It's cinematically a subgenre full of thrillers, full of violence and sex, and occasionally elements of horror. It takes its name from a particular brand of novels in this genre that were popular in the post-World War II era of Italian history. There are several major filmmakers, but two of the best known in the genre are Mario Bava and, of course, Dario Argento. Although there are still movies that are considered giallo made today, the heyday for these films was the 1970s, and Argento was at the forefront of creating movies that define the genre. His 1970 movie, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, took the subgenre into international phenomenon territory. This film was stylish, violent, colourful and sexually provocative and spawned a legion of similar films, including several by Argento himself. Although these films often have an international cast with talent from all over the world making appearances, often with no knowledge of Italian, meaning that quite often, even when you watch a subtitled version of the film, you'll be getting dubbed audio. The film I've chosen for today is Suspiria. Well, I could make an argument that it simply isn't a giallo at all, but rather a straightforward horror movie. It's certainly true in terms of the overarching plot, but when you look at the opening murder, it is far more in common with the thriller-slasher film than one concerned with the supernatural. It's a giallo by design, if not by subject matter. Suspiria is the story of an American girl, Susie played by American actress Jessica Harper, who joins a prestigious ballet school in Germany, but is immediately put off guard by a strange meeting with another student who ends up dead later that night. Things get stranger and stranger, with maggots falling from the ceiling of the school, the school's blind pianist ravaged to death in the town square by his guide dog, and frankly every student she forms a relationship with is just weird. Without being too spoilerific, she discovers the school is a cover for a coven of witches. And to be frank, that's going to be one of the shortest overviews of a film I'll do this year. 
because there really isn't much more to it without describing scenes in detail. In fact, this simplicity is one of the problems I have with the film. Others include the frankly risible acting and dialogue. Now I have read that Argento originally wanted the students to be 12 years old, but realised he was never going to be allowed to make a film as violent as this with 12 year old girls. And this is apparently an explanation for the childish dialogue, especially between the girls. And also why some of the door handles are apparently so high, to give an illusion of their short height. But it doesn't really explain why the rest of the dialogue and delivery is so awful. Although the mixture of American, Italian and German actors on display, often without a lingua franca to use amongst themselves, possibly also partly explains this. The early part of the story is also really, really weak. Jessica is sent out to live with one girl. A friendship and a possible love interest is brought into the mix. But merely a scene later, she is brought straight back into the dorm. The movie as a whole lacks subtlety. And to be perfectly honest with you all, in so many ways, it's a dreadful, though enjoyable, B-movie. Except there's something that is much, much more wonderful about it. For starters, your ears are assaulted by the jarring, psychedelic and noisy soundtrack by Italian prog rock band Goblin. This is the second of numerous collaborations with Argento, and they also did the soundtrack for the European version of Romero's Dawn of the Dead. But it's probably the most famous and successful. It increases the growing sense of an unease, and in one instance, where the recently dismissed blind piano player is mauled to death by his dog, actually intensifies the horror of a scene that looks a little sparse and, let's be honest about it, fake, when watched with the sound turned down. And then we have the general aesthetic of the film. We have a gloriously 1970s set design with crazy wallpapers and paint jobs. It's lit wonderfully, Big bold colours assault the screen gloriously and there are moments when you might just want to pause your DVD and drink in the visuals that are on display. And it has one of the most magnificent set pieces in horror this side of the Final Destination films. One girl is pulled out of a locked bathroom, stabbed on the roof multiple times, a noose wrapped around her neck and she's thrown through a glass skylight where the last of her life is choked out of her. Oh, and then her friend is impaled and showered in the falling debris. It ain't subtle, ladies and gentlemen, but it's mighty effective. There's another scene involving a pit of barbed wire and a razor blade that's rather effective as well, just as long as you don't think too long and hard about why exactly a ballet school would have such a pit. As you can tell, I have very mixed feelings about Suspiria. On one hand, it's a pretty dumb B-movie that has a plot so paper-thin that it is somewhat inconsequential. But when you dress that bare bones of a film up in the audio-visual treat that Argento is a master of, it becomes something rather special. In 1997, Italian comedy legend Roberto Benigni unleashed upon the world a film within a genre 
it stands fairly alone with him, the comedy-romance Holocaust movie. Whilst poking fun at Nazis, and Nazism isn't anything new, this film took the darkest days of the 20th century and tried to use it as a contrast to hope and love. But I get ahead of myself. The first hour of Life is Beautiful tells the story of Guido, played by Benini, a Jewish-Italian who in 1939, along with his friend, moves to the Tuscan town of Arezzo in order to start a new life. Comedic events unfold, mostly involving pretty schoolteacher Dora, played by Benini's real-life wife, Nicoletta Brashi. He calls her his princess, and he eventually charms her with his joy for life, and the pair get together, memorably on the day of her engagement party to a local bureaucrat. The film then seeks into the same place, the same people, but six years later. Guido and Dora are married, and they have a son, Joshua. Guido now runs the bookshop he desired, and Joshua is a precocious little thing, clearly with the comic charm of his father. Now it may be the fag end of World War II, but the Germans are still in southern Italy, and there is still danger for the Jewish people. And this really hits home when Guido and Joshua are taken away one day to a concentration camp. Dora finds out too late, but demands she is taken along, even though she is a Gentile. The males and females are separated at the camp, and Guido works hard to shelter his son from the real horror of what is going on. He tells him it's all a game, and that they can garner points in various ways, like doing what they are told, hiding from the German guards and what not. The other prisoners just let him get on with it. Occasionally events conspire to enable Guido to send a message over to Dora in the female section of the camp. What actually happens to all three? Well, I'll leave you to find out. So this one won Best Foreign Picture at the Oscars, as well as the Best Actor Prize, memorably for Benini himself. So why do I say it is flawed? Well, I guess there's two reasons why. The first is about the first half of the film. It's a very broad Italian farce, and Benini's character is so overly bubbly and comedic that it could grate on people who simply can't handle that kind of in-your-face humour. And it is quite wearing on the viewer. It's safe to say if the whole movie was like this, then it would probably have been a big local smash, but not really escape out of Italy. If you do like it, though, check out his previous movie, Il Mostro, The Monster. It's a very funny and farcical physical comedy that I'd actually recommend. The second reason is to do with that subject matter. Now some people think that making fun of the events of the Holocaust is in bad taste. Moreover, Benini himself is not Jewish. It was inspired by the true story of Italian Jew Rubino Romeo Salmoni in his book In the End I Beat Hitler. Benini and his production team did consult various Jewish groups to ensure no offence was caused. And on the whole, the film is successful in doing this, because what the film actually does is use the Holocaust and historical events as a backdrop for a love story between a woman and a man and a story about a father and a son. But I do understand when people like 
Mel Brooks criticised Benigni for taking on this sacred cow when he has no familial links to the concentration camps. But on the other hand, taking this to extremes, it does limit creativity if people can only make creative works about things they only have a familial connection to. However, importantly, Benigni does treat the subject with respect, and when the final act comes and the darkness of the situation dawns on Guido, after a soul-destroying reconnection with someone he knew in his previous life, the jokes do start to dry up. Furthermore, there is an unhappy ending for one of our three principles that only the heartless could not be affected by. I chose flawed masterpieces for this trip to Italy. Suspiria is an otherwise ordinary film that is memorable for the fantastic visuals and sounds and at least one magnificent set piece. Life is Beautiful is a film that is so dependent on whether you can stomach a couple of hours in the company of the star until a second half tonal shift makes it something somewhat special, touching and heartwarming despite that subject matter. These are both films that I believe transcend their limitations and generate cinema well worth watching. Now three episodes in and I still haven't gotten around to setting up all the social media yet. But if you want to contact the show, give feedback, maybe tell me about some of your favourite Italian films and I promise you we'll be back to Italy before this year is out. Or maybe you want to uh, come and join me. Feel free to contact me at Things fall apart at hotmail.co.uk for now. Next episode, we're going to go up to Northern Europe and to Sweden, where we talk about a sweet but strange coming-of-age tale and a modern take on the vampire myth. So until next time, this is Stephen, signing off from Italy. Ciao, grazie, arrivederci. <laughs>